The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 2 verses 1 through 23. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness, these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, to live in Seir, who live in Seir, away from the Araba road, from Elath and Ezion Gebir. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Imim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzamim, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the, for the people of Esau who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, even to this day. As for the Avib, who live in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphorim, who came from Kaphor, destroyed them and settled in their place. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. There are some times when we read the word and you all say, this is the word of the Lord, and I hear a little question mark <laughs> after it. This is the word of the Lord? Uh, what's, what are we going to do with this? Well, I want to assure you that I'm not here to give you a geography lesson this morning. I am here to give you theology as you travel. And I think that's what Moses was doing with the second generation. They, they were trying to learn as they travel, what do they think? What do they believe? What do they need to think about God? And so that's where we'll go today, not as much uh, in a geography lesson, but the theology that all of us have as we travel. Uh, before we get started, I just want to point out a great blessing we have. Uh, two of our uh, mission partners are with us, as you heard from Will earlier. We'll have a service tonight. But uh, Paul Hagagans and Gerhard Fries, they're from Bible Mission. I've had the privilege of traveling with them all over Central Asia. And uh, two of our dearest friends and a longtime partner, please greet them in the name of the Lord. And, and Ralph Connington and his family are here from Manchester, uh, England, longtime partner uh, of City Church Manchester. And so it's, it's just a great uh, time and a moment when you go, this is great to be a part of the kingdom of God, where your friends come in and travel and you hear what God's doing all over the world. So glad you guys are with us. Thank you. So let's pray that God would teach us uh, through his word. Let's pray. Father, this is the word of the Lord, and we take great confidence in that, that this is recorded by Moses for holy purposes for us today. And so we pray that you would help us hear it. We pray that you would help us hear it, not just with our ears, but with our hearts, by faith, through your spirit. Because we believe what you said, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and rebuking and equipping and training us. And so we need all of those things. So come and do that, we pray, by your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. Earlier this year, in April, I saw a video clip of a Washington, D.C. weatherman doing his job as bad weather and tornadoes approached the area of Bethesda, the Chevy Chase area, if you're familiar with that region. And as he took care of his job, he also knew he was a dad. And so during the live broadcast, broadcasting the tornadoes and where they were coming, meteorologist Doug Kammerer called his own kids during a live broadcast. He called them and said, go to the basement right now. Grab your sister. To which the boy said, now? He said, now. And what struck me is when he got off the phone, his first words were, gotta warn my kids. And what you learn from that moment is he didn't call every household in Maryland. He called his children. They got a special call from someone who had knowledge, who had authority, who had love and protection for them. And so because of their relationship to him, they had particular guidance and care. In Deuteronomy 2, Moses is recounting the wilderness wanderings of the first generation. And that first generation was being disciplined because of their sin. 
And, and why is Moses recounting this? Because they're God's kids. You're his people. You are to receive guidance. He specifically speaks to us. Remember Deuteronomy is a set of sermons, three sermons. Moses is in his first sermon. He's preaching to the second generation. And God is not through with them. Uh, Moses, as it were, is like the meteorologist. Gotta warn God's kids. Because the first generation has been wandering in the wilderness as we read about here in this text. They were in the midst of it still receiving God's guidance, still receiving God's provision, and still being led by promise. Why? Because they're God's kids. They belong to him. He disciplined them, yes, but the discipline did not equal God's abandonment of them. They belong to him. And so he continually gives them grace and mercy in their travels. When we belong to God, we can give thanks for his faithfulness as he leads us and loves us. And therefore, because of his leadership, because of his fathering of us, we can obey commands even when we don't understand them. We can depend on God's generous provision, and we can trust God's promises to be true no matter what. And that's what we see in this text. First, God's commands are to be heeded even when we don't understand. There are three commands in verses 1 through 4 that are recounted. Uh, Verse 1 is, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. That's a command from last week and earlier where uh, God said, you're not going up. You didn't believe, you didn't trust me. You chose to live by sight rather than by faith, so you're not going up. And remember, after he said, you're not going up, they said, well, go up. He said, no, you're not, I'm not going with you. And so they disobeyed, even looking like they were obeying. And so now they finally obey the command, they turn south. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. I'm sure that did not make sense fully. A 14-day journey to Kadesh Barnea will now turn into a 40-year wandering. Why? Because God said so. It doesn't make sense to obey that. That seems like a waste. This seems frivolous. This seems maybe too tedious. God's being too strict. Whatever you want to say. But the bottom line is God said it and they are called to obey it. And the good news is there's some obedient behavior. They turned instead of going up into the hill country. But then in verse 2, the Lord said to me, Moses, and he's recounting this to the second generation. He said, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Well, that would have been another command that would have been, really? We've been wandering for 40 years, but we remember the last time we turned northward, there are giants there. You're still holding us to this thing of taking the land? That would have been met with more confusion and wondering, do I have to obey what God commands even when I don't understand? And then in verse 4, he says, and command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Sire, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. This is the region of Edom, which is Esau's people. And they'll go up into Moab and Ammon, which is Lot's people, which means that's kinfolk to them as God's people. 
And God's saying, as you travel up through there, through other people's lands on the east side, they take a new route. First generation took a route through the Amorites. And God says, I'm going to take you through your own people. They still would not understand that you want us not to fight them. You want us to pay them. You want us to trust you that they're going to treat us right as we go up through there. Three commands that, quite frankly, would not have made a whole lot of sense. And here's the theology for our travels. Obey God even when you don't understand. He's trustworthy. When God commands, we can trust him. When I was in Israel this summer, I, one of my favorite moments was in the Garden of Gethsemane where the olive trees still were there and there was a little plaque that I read as I was there and it read this. Oh Jesus, in deepest night and agony, you spoke these words of trust and surrender to God the Father in Gethsemane. In love and gratitude, I want to say in times of fear and distress, listen to this, my Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. The heart of Gethsemane. I do not understand you, but I trust you. That's the theology for our travels as pilgrim people in this world. That we are to obey the commands even when we don't understand them. That we are to trust God even when we don't understand. And that is the way of our Savior who did the very thing in the garden. Now, not only as they travel are they to keep commands that they don't understand, they're to understand that God's generous provision is perfect. It's perfect, despite how it may appear to them. You remember they grumbled a whole lot about God's provision. But as you look in verse three again, it says, first he says, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward. But then in verse seven, read this, it says, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You lacked nothing. Who is this speaking of? The first generation that he's disciplining, that he sent into the wilderness, that refused to live according to the promise, that lived by sight instead of by faith. And listen to what he says from verse 7. I bless you. I know you. He says, I've been with you and you've lacked nothing. That's the generous grace of God for a rotten people. They did not deserve his blessing. They did not deserve his presence. They did not deserve his generous provision. But he says, I'm still yours, you're still mine. I got to warn my kids, but I got to be faithful to my kids because I'm a covenant keeping God. And his generous provision, this is for us as we travel, his generous provision to the disobedient Israelites and to us is twofold. God's generous provision is merciful discipline 
and it is merciful provision. And you and I, as we travel, need to know that both his discipline and his provision is his mercy. And that's what Moses is telling that next generation that will go into the land. First, merciful discipline. Verses 15 through 16, you see, for indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished, meaning the first generation. And so as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. Yes, their wandering is discipline from God. The first generation will perish. There are consequences to sin. And yet God is still committed to them in the midst of their suffering, the consequences of their sin. But the, the discipline because of that covenant commitment is mercy. Oftentimes we think that when God disciplines us, it's abandonment. It's mercy. We'll talk about why, but they, they have not lost their salvation. They are paying the painful cost of disobedience, and yet God's still with them and for them while they pay that cost. That's mercy. As one commentator said, imaginary dangers became more persuasive to the people of God than dependable promises of Yahweh. And he punished them because imaginary dangers became more persuasive than the dependable promises of God. Think about us. What imaginary dangers are shaping us and becoming more persuasive to us than the dependable promises of God. To live in that, to act in that, leads to what? Discipline. And that's a mercy. Because to live according to imaginary dangers as being more persuasive will take you on the path that is not life, but death. And God's committed to giving us life, and he will convince us to live according to his promises. He's committed to that. And so the second generation watches the first generation wander off and die. Why? So that they will know sin is not something you trifle with lightly. The secure grace of God must never cause us to treat sin casually. The costs are too high. Just ask the first generation who wandered in the desert and died. God's discipline is merciful in that verse 3, it comes to an end. He says, now, you've journeyed long enough in these mountains, let's head north and do this again. So his mercy is that he disciplines us for a period, he's faithful to that discipline, but why is he disciplining us? The correction is necessary, not only so that we might learn how to live, but so that the next generation might know how to live and not repeat the mistakes of the first generation. 
And so one of the gracious, generous provisions of God through Moses as he preaches is God will not let you deal with sin casually without discipline. And if you sense that he is, tremble. Tremble. Because the meteorologist calls his kids. God disciplines those who are his. So this is a, a generous provision of merciful discipline. It is not departure. It is not withdrawal. It is not passive aggressive behavior of a divine being. It is love for the sake of us and the next generation. I recently read a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin called Leadership in Turbulent Times, and she talks about President Lyndon Bain Johnson. And he had what was known as the Johnson freeze-out, is what everybody that worked with him called it. But as she described it, it came from his mother. When he failed to fulfill his mother's ambitions for him, when he became a sluggish student or resisted continuing in violin or dancing lessons, she withdrew her love and affection. And he said, and then I had to watch her being especially warm and nice to my father and sisters. Have you ever had someone love somebody else at you? That's what his mother did. He said love was alternatively lavished and snatched away for obedience and achievement. And so in later years, Lyndon Bain Johnson would exhibit a similar pattern in dealing with his friends and colleagues and members of his staff. He would blanket someone with generosity, care, and affection. But in recompense, he would expect total loyalty and sterling achievement. And if you failed, you got the Johnson freeze out. I think we think God's like that. It's the divine freeze out. That his discipline is the divine freeze out. That God's no longer for you. He's manipulating you. He's passively, aggressively trying to woo you back. That's not who God is. God is loving and God is merciful and his discipline is love and mercy. It is not him abandoning us. It is not him departing from us. Just look at verse 7. As he disciplines them, he blesses them. He's with them. He provides for them. You see, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant are unconditional blessings of the promise. But the Mosaic covenant came with terms, and they now suffer the consequences of breaking that, that they agreed to. But they still are secure as his people. And so he stays with them. God's discipline is not a freeze-out, it's love. And that's why Jude in verse 5 says this, Now I want to make you, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He saved them, and he disciplined them so that they would not trifle with sin. But his 
mercy is here, not only a merciful discipline, it's a merciful provision. You can see it as he says, verse six, you shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. He says in verse seven, you've lacked nothing. Where did they get the money? Where did they get the silver? God had provided for them. Despite them, he provided for them. Although the Lord may discipline us, he does not abandon us. He is generous in his provisions for us. And you and I can live with utter confidence in the provision of God as we travel. No matter what the circumstances, we can trust our God will provide. Why? Because we're his. No matter what your circumstances feel like, God will provide. Our friends from Central Asia told me a story of the Moldovan church. They were just recently there, the poorest country in Europe, flooding with Ukrainian refugees. What are they doing right now? They're putting up food for the winter, a harsh winter. When the Ukrainian refugees came, you know what they did? said, forget putting up food for the winter. We have to share it with those in need. And they have emptied all of their resources for the winter. Killing chickens and pigs and emptying all the harvest they put up for the winter. And you know what they said? Why did they say it? They said, the Lord will provide for us just like he used us to provide for the refugees. They're not afraid about empty cupboards and emptiness for the winter. God provided for the Ukrainian refugees. How? Through the Moldovan church. We didn't have anything. We didn't have much except some plans for the winter. So what are you going to do when you get to the winter? I said, the Lord will provide. We belong to him. Is that how we live as we travel? Trust in God's generous provision. Trust in God's commands even when we don't understand them. And finally, knowing that God's gracious promises are sure no matter how much time passes. You can read in verse 5, He says, do not contend with them, meaning the people of Esau, for I will not give you any of their land because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. I've already given it to them. I've promised it and I've given it to them. Verse nine, and the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, Lot's people, or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I've given R to the people of Lot for a possession. I've already given it to them. It's not yours. I made a promise. I keep it. Verse 14, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zared was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war who had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. I told you I was going to take out the first generation. I will do it. Verse 19, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. Why? Because I've given it to the sons of Lot for possession. I've promised it and I've given it. I've promised it and I've given it. I've promised it and I've given it. And I don't break my promises, God says to them. So you can trust me. As you travel through the wilderness and through this world and through this land, God doesn't break his promises. God's not fickle. God's not moody. 
changing his mind here and there on whom he's going to love. No, he shows, and even if you look in your Bible, verses 10 through 12 are in parentheses, verses 20 through 23 are in parentheses. And those parentheses are talking about how God kept his promise to give the people of Esau the land, how he kept his promise to give the people of Moab and Ammon his land. And what he did was he took out giants, the Amim and the Anakim and the Zazuzumim or whatever that says. All of that means real big people. All the things they were afraid of when they didn't go in the first time, he's looking back and saying, I keep my promises. There were giants in the way of the land I said I was going to give. I took them out. Why? Because I keep my promises. So what? The most repeated command in the Bible. Do not fear. Live by faith. In what? What God has promised. And it doesn't matter how much time has passed since he promised it. The first generation saw 40 years passed until that promise was fulfilled. The second generation can enter into the Holy Land, knowing into the promised land, knowing God keeps his promises. Consider the long-awaited promises of Messiah, Jesus, and yet those were fulfilled, and every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Consider us. He will keep his promises, though it's a long wait till home. He will keep his promises, the promises of of his son reigning forever on the throne of David, the promises that if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, which means we what? We'll inherit the earth. The promises to Moses that he will guide us as his people, the promises that he will redeem us through the work of Jesus, the promise that he will return. Here's the main focus for Moses as he talks to the second generation, and I would say the main focus as I speak to you. Will we live by faith in the promises of God? At the end of the day, that's the question. Do I believe God to be trustworthy? Do I believe God to be generous? Do I believe God to be merciful? So that as I travel and as I wander on this pilgrim land, I can live by faith in his promises and not live by fear in what I see. That's the dilemma for the second generation. That's the dilemma for us as we move towards the new heavens and the new earth. Do we believe God keeps his promises? Will we live by them in the face of all kinds of imaginary dangers that are way more persuasive to our eyes than the Bible and to the gospel? Will we live by faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy that you're a good father. You don't let us just go in our own muck and mire of sin. You correct us, you discipline us, you show us cost and consequence, but you do it with your blessing and your presence and your grace and your provision. 
you are so committed to us. We are so thankful that you do not treat us like we treat you. And I pray for all of us as we travel in this world that by your spirit you give us the obedience to keep the commands that we don't understand. That you give us trust and hope in your generous, perfect provision, much like even the Moldovan church. That you would give us faith to live that you keep your promises no matter what, so we can trust you no matter what. Strengthen us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.